this might be the biggest crisis that we've faced as a human species. I think that there's a tremendous opportunity for us to come together as a species in a way that we haven't before to resolve this climate crisis. And so I actually see a lot of hope in potential in talking about and doing these kinds. And the Earth Archive, I think, is one example of a global project that could be like that, that could you know, help bring us together as, as a species in this time when we're more connected than ever, but perhaps more divided than ever. Welcome to the Sustainable Jungle Podcast. I'm Lyle, and in this episode, Joy and I are chatting with archaeologist and director of The Earth Archive, Chris Fisher. The Earth Archive is both a program for scanning focused on endangered landscapes and a collection of LiDAR scans accessible to scientists around the world. We cover more on The Earth Archive the meaningful applications of the technology to mitigate the impact of climate change and their plans for the coming year. As always, you can find the show notes for this episode, including all the relevant links over at sustainablejungle forward slash podcast. Now, let's all grab our fedoras and take to the skies with Chris Fisher. Welcome to our show, Chris. Let's start with a little bit more about you. Where were you born and where did you grow up? Sure. Well, thank you for having me. And I was born in Minnesota, and I spent half my childhood in Duluth, Minnesota, which is on the southern tip of Lake Superior. It's kind of the extreme northern part of Minnesota by, up by Canada. And then half my childhood in Spokane, Washington, in eastern Washington. But I, I consider my hometown to be Duluth, Minnesota. Very cool. And tell us a bit more about your career. I understand that you studied anthropology. I did study anthropology. I actually started out in college as a uh, music major, a percussion major. I wanted to be a professional jazz drummer, but um, wow. I just didn't. Uh, I just didn't have the focus, and so uh, I kind of took a archaeological field school, and I was really, really good at it. And I'd always kind of been interested in it, and I loved it. And that, and I, I just from that was my career path, like. From that point onward, I guess. You know, some people say that, oh, I've always wanted to be an archaeologist or I want to do this. And I, I guess I was always interested in archaeology, but it's not always what I wanted to do. Yeah, I feel like there's most people out there are like, wow, I love the idea of being an archaeologist. Maybe you could um, share a little bit about some of the fieldwork that you've done, because I know that there's been some pretty cool things there. Well, sure. I've done fieldwork all over the world, North America, Europe. Uh, and all through Latin America, but most of my, the, the main focus of my work has been in Mexico studying uh, an empire that was contemporaneous with the Aztec empire, but is lesser known, but sort of equally as fantastic. And I worked for my dissertation research, I worked in uh, the core, the geopolitical core of that empire, which is in the Mexican state of Michoacan, and I've done survey and excavation and kind of environmental work in, in that part of the world, trying to unravel the processes that were involved in that empire forming both social processes and environmental processes. And then I've also done work in, and possibly the most sort of well-known work I've done has been in Honduras where I've also excavated and 
did LIDAR survey on a site that was completely unknown until 2012. Gosh, I mean, in today's day and age, you wouldn't think there's that many places left to explore. That must have been incredible. What were some of the, the key takeaways, reflections, or learnings from that experience? The Honduras work was pretty amazing. That city is in a place called the Mosquitia Rainforest, which is often, it's the last tract of multi-level tropical forest left in Central America. It's often called the Little Amazon or the Lungs of Central America. It's very, very remote, and it's very sort of pristine, you would think, at first glance. And getting access to that site was very difficult. Uh, it was basically involved going in by land, going in by helicopter. There's no electricity. It's completely disconnected from the 21st century. So there's no electricity, roads, people, etc. And when we first landed at that place, people hadn't been there seemingly for centuries, since probably when it was abandoned. At the time of European contact in the 1530s, when people sort of melted away due to European-introduced disease. So stepping into that landscape was probably the only time in my life that I'll be able to enter a world that was devoid of people. So the animals didn't have any fear or experience with people. There was no trace of modern people. There was no plastic. It's the only place I've been in the world where there isn't some plastic. There was nothing. <laughs> No garbage at all. And it was absolutely a, a, a transformative experience for me. And one of the big takeaway messages, I think, from that, for me, and I think it's one reason that, and this story was popularized in a book called The Lost City, the Monkey God, which was published by Douglas Preston, which is on a New York Times bestseller list for, I think, like a year or something. Wow. And I think one of the reasons that that book was so popular was because people have this idea, they're like, oh, it's the 21st century. There's nothing left to discover. Let's, it's time to go to Mars. <laughs> but in reality, we know so little about our own planet. We have better maps of the moon than we do of many places on our own planet. And I think that that fact that there's just so much left to discover is something that one reason why that story in that book and that work sort of captured the popular imagination. Yeah, it sounds like something straight out of a movie. It kind of, it kind of was like a movie. And, you know, <laughs> people often tell me that I resemble a young Harrison Ford. So, <laughs> no, 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 that's just, that's we, just a joke. We, we, we were wondering if you that's have... That's not true. We, we were wondering if you have the same hat. Or do all the archaeologists have the no. same hat? <laughs> Is that right to passage? No, I don't... <laughs> Yeah, no. I usually wear um when I'm in the field I either wear a baseball cap or a cowboy hat. Usually. Okay. I don't know. At least there's the cowboy hat. <laughs> Chris, I'm gonna dive in now to to your current project. You are the director of Earth Archive. Can you tell us more about this super ambitious project? What exactly is it? It's scarily ambitious. <laughs> Actually. Keeps keeps me up at night sometimes. In, in my work in Mexico and in Honduras, we used a new kind of technology, which is called airborne LIDAR. And everybody's sort of familiar with LIDAR or they've heard of it. It's used in self-driving cars. It's used in a lot of other technology. 
airborne LIDAR is a little different in that you have some sort of aerial platform, helicopter, fixed-wing aircraft, a drone. From that aerial platform, there's an instrument on that aircraft that shoots down a grid of infrared pulses or laser pulses. Um, it's like 300,000 to 500,000 pulses per second. Wow. When one of those pulses strikes something on the ground, could be a leaf, could be the top of a tree, could be the ground, returns back to the sensor, and it gives you a measure of distance. It's like a sonar for the ground, sort of. What what you end up with is not a photograph, and it's not an image, and many people mis- mistakenly call it an image. It's very easy to confuse. But what it actually is, is a three-dimensional cloud of points. And if you put on like a set of 3D glasses, like Oculus glasses, you can actually get into that cloud of points and kind of walk through it. Eventually, that technology is going to, that's what is going to be like the holodeck on Star Trek. That's how, that's how that's going to get made, oh. is <laughs> through that kind of LiDAR technology. We use that technology to digitally record the Earth. Uh, the ground and everything on it, the trees, whatever. And then we digitally, we practice what I call digital deforestation, which is we use an algorithm to strip away the vegetation. It's still there. You can click a button and put it back. But we digitally, (laughs) digitally remove it so that we can see the ground surface below, so that we can see the archaeology below. And in using this technology to look for archaeological sites, Myself and my colleagues, I realized that this is the ultimate conservation tool. And it's brand new. We don't even really know how to use these records. But they are recording not only the Earth's surface, but everything on it. All of the trees, brush, uh, whatever else is there. So it is, you know, all of that stuff that I spend hours stripping away are the careers of hundreds of other scientists that are studying species composition, tree size, age, forest health, the geology, hydrology, topology. I mean, it's, it's endless when you think about it. And because the earth is changing so quickly right now, so rapidly, and even if today we all start living like the Flintstones, <laughs> the changes that we make today are telegraphed decades into the future. The earth is going to change. We can't stop that. And so the idea behind the earth archive is that there are things that we can do. It's not time to give up. I mean, I see these Facebook groups and people are like, I'm cashing in my 401k. We're going to party like it's 1999 until we run out of money. And and that's going to be it. And we don't have any kids. It's it's hopeless. It's it's actually not hopeless. Um, And there's a lot of stuff we can do. And and I want to talk also about this in a second, but so that's what that's what the Earth Archive is about. We want to use this LIDAR technology to digitally record the entire landmass of the planet, all 29.2% of it, so that we have a record of what the planet looks like today for people generations in the future. So that we have baseline data so we can begin to measure change. We don't even, we have, as I, we don't have baseline data for much of the Amazon, for example. Mm. We can't even tell how the Amazon's changing because we can't measure it against anything. And then also to create like a digital planet 
so we can better understand the climate crisis. So what I, what I often tell people is, I don't know how to resolve the climate crisis, but I know what one of the first steps is, and that is to create this digital earth. And that's the idea behind the Earth Archive, starting, of course, with areas that are most threatened. And one of those areas that we want to do immediately is the Amazon. I, I wonder if you can, and you've touched on this briefly, the, the potential use cases uh, for this technology. And, and it's interesting because just a couple of days ago, I was on coastalrisk.com.au, which is basically uh, a map of the towns and cities around Australia's coastlines that will be impacted by climate change. And they've they've used LIDAR technology to give you a very granular idea of the streets and suburbs, etc., that will be flooded by that time. But that's just one example. I wonder which other use cases or use case you are most excited about using this technology. Well, I think actually being able to study the ecology of these places in incredible detail is perhaps the most important aspect of creating the Earth Archive. And it pains me to say that because I am an archaeologist, <laughs> you know, and we're going to we're going to discover hundreds of archaeological sites doing this. But learning about the ecology, species dis distribution, density, tree height, tree size. I mean, these records are so fine grain that you can, uh, you know, measure the, the diameter of trees, measure the kinds of trees that are, have fallen on the forest. Um, you can do that over time if you have time sequence data. So we want to just keep going back again and scanning and scanning. In other words, you know, getting a, an idea of the basic geology of these areas, which for, for many, for most parts of the world, we don't even, we don't have these high grain maps, mapping ice distributions, glacial distributions. I mean, really the, 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 the possibilities for, for how these records can be used are, it's absolutely endless. And the other crazy thing is we're losing so much every day, so much of our cultural and ecological patrimony due to the climate crisis and, and just human, uh, and just land cover change that's um, largely driven by human societies that we don't even know what we're losing. We're gonna lose stuff that we, we don't, we will have no idea that we're losing, which is the real tragedy in this. And you know, just this year, we saw Notre Dame burn. And that was a, a tragedy of immense proportions. They got you know, such crazy media coverage. And luckily, in 2014, there was a very smart uh, art historian named Andrew Talon who scanned the cathedral using LIDAR inside and out. And that LIDAR record will prove invaluable to the reconstruction of Notre Dame. But this year, we've also seen other kinds of cathedrals burning. And to me, the Amazon in that forest is just another kind of cathedral. Mm. But we don't have those kinds of records for it. We don't have that baseline data. Once it's gone, once we lose those areas, which I think is like a one American-sized football field every hour or something, or some, maybe every minute. I mean, it's Horrifying. some crazy it's statistic. Yeah. Once that stuff is gone, we, we don't have a record of it. And that, to me, is a bigger tragedy. I hate to say it because I love Notre Dame. I was just there this Christmas. But, you know, that's a bigger tragedy to me than, than losing Notre Dame in that way. 
Absolutely. And as we we're facing this next mass extinction, it feels like this is this is a pretty urgent thing to address as as fast as possible. I can imagine that. I don't know if you've seen those those maps of uh, going around on Facebook at the moment. It's like a a pie chart that shows you know what percentage of living beings is made up of of humans versus animals that exist for human consumption. Uh, versus wild animals and the wild animal percentage I think was something like four percent of living beings and to think that we are you know we're going into a mass extinction where that tiny little four percent is going to disappear shortly and we don't even know what's in that four percent or where they are or how they work or much about them it feels like doing something like an earth archive is a no-brainer it makes it makes a lot of sense well i'm glad to hear you say that (laughs) (laughs) it's actually surprising that we we haven't even tried to do something like this before i know and i and i just think the time is ripe for this kind of project and you know one of the thing i want to say is i see a lot of media coverage about people that are like suffering from climate anxiety and they're just sort of giving up and I really think that resolving the climate crisis is this amazing opportunity for us as a species to come together. And we've done this in the past. We've come together, you know, maybe like during World War II or at other times when we faced a massive crisis. This might be the biggest crisis that we've faced as a human species. And I think that there's a tremendous opportunity for us to come together as a species in a way that we haven't before to resolve this climate crisis. And so I actually see a lot of hope in potential in talking about and doing these kinds. And the Earth Archive, I think, is one example of a global project that could be like that, that could you know, help bring us together as, as a species in this, in this time when um, it seems like we're, so, we're more connected than ever but perhaps more like divided than ever, more, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I was reading this book the other day by... Yuval Harari. Yuval <laughs> Harari, that's right. And uh, yeah, <laughs> and he, he just made exactly the same point as you, Chris, that indeed this is probably the greatest challenge that humanity has ever faced. And, and, it, yeah. and at the same time, I think it's, it's so, good, so important to view that in a positive light and, and an opportunity for us to work together uh, and to and to resolve this collectively, um, but I'm interested to know, on a personal level, why? I mean, this is a massive challenge. Why is it important to you? I think there's kind of two reasons, and one is, you know, before I did that lidar project in the in the Mosquito area, before I stepped off that helicopter into that environment, before I, you know, and there's a firestorm of criticism, and it's a new technology, so we got, you know, people kind of misunderstood what we were doing, etc. and But I think stepping into that environment and getting that criticism and having to deal with that fundamentally changed me as a scholar. And I think it changed me as a person. And it made me realize how how many places are undiscovered, how much how much knowledge we how much how much we can potentially learn from these places and how much we can potentially lose. And I think that also made me realize that. This is a time in our human prehistory where everybody needs to stand up and be counted. And we really have to think about our legacies and how we want to be seen by the people that come after us. 
And I want people to be able to say that, yeah, my ancestor, even if the Earth Archive failed, my ancestor, at least my ancestor stood up and tried to do something, realized that there was a problem and tried to do something. And I think we all have to look within ourselves for, for ourselves and see, you know, and see what we can do, and what, how we can make a contribution. And I really felt like this was the contribution that I could make. This is something that I could do. It needed to be done. My experience using LIDAR and seeing the importance of LIDAR and the, the potential of it, capabilities of it, all sort of came together with, for me, you know, I, I just felt compelled to create this Earth Archive, to create this program, to get some of these scans done, at least, or at least to get it started. What, what does the timeline look like, actually? Where are you now in the project? We have, a, we have uh, enough donations now to start scanning in the Amazon. I'm not going to tell you exactly where because we're still working on the permitting and stuff for that, but to start scanning in the Amazon on February 1st of 2020. And hopefully we'll just continue. Hopefully we won't stop. Hopefully it'll just be a rolling scan. We'll get enough donations and money to, to just keep scanning. And then we want to move on to other threatened areas. And we're going to have a big conference here at Colorado State University in, in Fort Collins, Colorado in the U.S. in the spring, where we're going to bring together a bunch of, of, of scholars and, and um, stakeholders and lay people together to address a bunch of questions that we still have about the Earth Archive, not the least of which is, how do we define a threatened area? Where should we start? I think there's some obvious places, Amazon, uh, tropical forest areas of, of Africa, et cetera, but there's many in coastal areas, but there's many other places that maybe aren't quite as obvious to me that will be obvious to other people. Right. And what else is needed to get Earth Archive archiving? Do you need to, uh, as you say, you've got this conference coming up, but touch base with other folks in different continents, countries to be doing the same thing? We'd love to talk to people from other continents and other countries. The way that we envision the Earth, Earth Archive working is that there might be a, um, like a digital seed bank. There might be a, a an Earth Archive in the EU, and maybe there'll be an Earth Archive somewhere in Southeast Asia uh, to maybe cover as much of the world as we can, and maybe someplace in Africa. And then um, we uh, we need big donations. And so I've been I've been telling everybody that we can scan the entire Amazon. For fifteen million dollars, U.S. twenty million dollars would be better. We can do it for fifteen. Now that sounds like a lot of money, but when you consider the kinds of data that you're getting and the legacy that you're building, a legacy potential for somebody is just tremendous. And you place that amount of money into context, that's half the cost of Jeff Bezos's new yacht. <laughs> that is the cost of three. 30-second Super Bowl ads for American football. Amazing. That is is a fraction of the cost that Google just spent on bringing all of those rich people to that Mediterranean island so they could talk about what they could do about the climate crisis. Oh, my goodness. I mean, mean, it's really not – it sounds like for, for ordinary folks, it's kind of a lot of money, but 
in the con in the in the bigger picture, it's really not that much money. Yep. yep. And using your analogy of Notre Dame, how much was was pledged to to help rebuild Notre Dame? It was like billions. Ex- billions. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I know Notre Dame. I love Notre Dame. It was beautiful. I know it's very important, but there's there's lots of things that need to lots of other things that need to be done as well. Yep. You know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, there's there's a possible scenario where Notre Dame doesn't exist in the not too distant future if we don't do or more. Or nobody else to appreciate Notre Dame. Nobody's yeah. left. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, that's the that's a conundrum, isn't it? You can preserve Notre Dame, but if there's nobody left, it's what's the point? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. It sounds like there's a lot of exciting things coming up in the next year and the next 12 months is, is, is super critical. Chris, uh, you've already touched on uh, the Amazon starting and the ad- Amazon scanning starting in, in February. Is scanning the right word to use? Is it scanning? Archiving, I guess, is the, is the right verb there. Well, it's really, <laughs> the way that we, yeah, the way that we conceive the Earth Archive, it's really in three parts of it. Yeah. So the main, the main focus is scanning. But we also have to get the once we get the data, we have to process it, and then we have to archive it, and then we have to be able to distribute the data. So we want to um, make this data available to as broad and wide a number of scientists and other people as we possibly can. And I, I can't say open source. I was saying open source the other day. And we, you know, we're talking to a bunch of computer scientists on how to do that. And they were like, oh, you can't open source means you can't say open source. It's not. what." So I'm not saying open source anymore, (laughs) but we want to make it available to as as broad a number of people as as we possibly can. And then, you know, and there's a number of things that need to get worked out before we can do that. But the most important thing is to just get the scanning done, to collect the data now while we can, before these environments fundamentally change. So we're sort of working on those three aspects of it. And then, of course, doing research with the data. We don't even really know how to use uh, – this is going to make a bunch of – a bunch of people might disagree with me on this. But we, we don't even know really how to use these LIDAR data yet. We do in a kind of a basic sort of way. But 10 years from now, 20 years from now, people are going to be going – 100 years from now, hopefully, people are going to be going back through these LIDAR data that we collect using tools that are so much more sophisticated, asking questions that we can't even imagine now and pulling so much more information out of these scans than we're able to do now. But it's critical that we, we get the records now. I mean, that's really the, that's really the bottom line. So, so these, and I, and I'm going to use the word image here and I know that's incorrect, but, but the data that you're capturing, Chris, is obviously incredibly high res to be able to say that in 10 years uh, scientists archaeologists etc who look at this data will be able to uh, extract huge amounts of information from it yeah it's absolutely so um we're talking about making being able to make products so when we talk about the lidar data and this is kind of technical but we we have a point cloud which is a three-dimensional record of the earth and everything on it and what people generally do is manipulate that point cloud and then turn it into 2D data. So you take 3D data and turn it into 2D data or 2D plus. And from those 2D plus data, that's when we actually do the uh, analysis. 
So when it's turned into 2D plus stuff, technically it is kind of, it is an image. Okay. Basically for all intents and purposes. We're, it takes so much computing power right now and we just don't have the know-how to really be able to examine the data in three dimensions at a kind of a big scale. You can do it at small scales, but not a big scale. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we might not really be creating these two-dimensional images or imagery out of the visualizations is what the technical term for it. We might not be creating these visualizations from the 3D data, probably be looking at the 3D data itself. We just can't do that right now, yeah. uh, pra practically speaking. As you said, it's a, it's like a Star Trek hologram. That's what we were expecting. <laughs> yeah. I would like, before I, before I move on, I would like to see some sort of holodeck sort of thing where you can just call up, call up different stand in there and call up different images from the Earth Archive and be able to go, you know, 20 years from now, be able to go into the Amazon in 2020 and, uh, you know, go into the forest of Central America or Africa or go to the coast and, and see Miami as it exists today, <laughs> you so know, cool. which is rapidly disappearing, yeah. <laughs> which is rapidly disappearing or where, you know, wherever else it is to see what it actually is, you know, walk down the street of Miami today, you know, in 2020 and versus, you know, whatever. Yeah, I can imagine that the the virtual reality uh, folks out there will probably be quite interested in using some of this data as well. A lot of video game folks are actually interested in it. Totally, yeah. Video games would be a great a great use case. Not not so related to climate change, but yeah, very very yeah. fun. I imagine the yeah. I can imagine what you're saying. Um, I mean, I don't don't know much about it, of course, but but we don't even have the the tools today to properly use the data. But with artificial intelligence, you can imagine that being one way to you know, to yeah. where artificial intelligence can be really exciting. Mm. And that's one thing we're actually trying to do is because, for example, the city that we discovered in Mexico has about somewhere, has over 40,000 building foundations on it. Wow. And it's so many, so many building foundations, in fact, that that's an estimate because we can't count it. And we can't sit there and digitize it. And we can't analyze it. So we've actually been working with some scientists from IBM to uh, use AI or machine learning to uh, pre-classify everything so we can get it into a format where we can begin to just get, you know, basic counts of the different types of buildings and volumes and stuff like that. So AI machine learning will, will be the way that these data are analyzed uh, in the future. No, that's very exciting. Makes sense. Yeah. Maybe just to, to summarize it, it sounds like the, the outcome, maybe say if we were to touch base in a year's time, there would be some online portal somewhere that has this data available for any scientists to use to use the, 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 early, the early scans um, and other pieces of data that you're collecting uh, from the, the initial Amazon work. Is that sort of the, uh, the vision right now is to have this, this place where people can come and, and use the data for whatever they need to use it for? Yes, and so I would hope in a year's time that we have multiple teams scanning multiple places um, on the Earth, collecting as much data as we possibly can, and that there's some sort of portal where people can access the data. Um, it might not be open sourced in the true meaning of that word, but it would be through you go through a process where you're vetted slightly because some of the data will be sensitive. 
Mm-hmm. Should might show archaeological sites or other features that people might not know are there. And some right. of the countries involved, you know, they might have some restrictions on on who can see the data just to kind of, um, pr- you know, protect things. So, and and there's a huge ethics part of this that we're also trying to kind of resolve and work around. But um, I would hopefully there'd be some sort of mechanism so people can get the data and that there'll be a whole core of people that are working with the data and working with us to get the scans done and analyze it and help us use these data for people that are working on solutions to the climate crisis. That's where I would hope we are in, in a year's time yeah, with a flashy website. With a flashy website. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was, I was thinking that as you were saying that with the, the ethics questions, you know, things like rhino poaching and tracking down rhinos, is 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 a massive thing for rhino poachers i think so have, having some protection i don't know if lidar would would provide intel on that sort of thing but um having some protection i can see why you'd need to consider that at some stage that's really interesting to provide data for people who are studying and protecting the rhinos right yes and i guess if if the poachers were sophisticated enough to be analyzed to analyze the data you know they maybe they'd be able to get some information about where rhinos might be but it's not going to be current data about where those populations right, are exactly. and that sort of stuff, Yeah, you yeah. know, but it, it will show other things. And, you know, there's a lot of ethical issues that we need to, that we need to resolve and we need to work with indigenous groups and stakeholders um, and governments and, and governmental agencies and, and other interested people to make sure that the data is used in a way that they sort of agree with and that's ethical for them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, you know, hopefully, we'll have some people. Well, we will have people working on that. Yeah, gosh, quite quite a comp- complex set of issues there, but very exciting overall, I think, and um, immense opportunity to to really make some significant change. Mm. So, and to use it for the positive. Yeah, absolutely. Chris, we wanted to ask you our favorite doozy question, uh, which is, <laughs> <laughs> if you could if you could get one message into the heads of every human on this planet and have it truly heard, what would it be? Uh, I would say that people need to um, realize that there's so much left to discover on, on our own planet, but that we're running out of time. And we really need to focus our... So I often use this... I, this analogy of phraseology it's it, if if the earth is is the titanic uh you know we've struck the iceberg everybody's on deck the orchestra's playing we need to decide what we're going to put on the lifeboats and this is this is our time when we need to to decide to do that we and and the earth archive is definitely one of those things that should be on the lifeboats i guess that would be my big takeaway message very cool and that everybody, there's something that everybody can be doing. Everybody needs to be doing something. Speaking of which, what is the best way for listeners out there to support the Earth Archive? So I, I don't want to sound crass, but of course you can donate. <laughs> and the donate, there's a donate button on the website, which is theeartharchive.com. So the Earth Archive is all one word. The Earth Archive. And you can go there and donate. Um, but you can also tell your friends and neighbors uh, about it. And then also please watch my TEDx talk, which has uh, more information about the, the Earth Ar- Archive concept and, um, and you know, uh, links and all that sort of stuff. It's an excellent TED talk. Highly recommended. Highly, highly recommended. <laughs> uh, 
Well, I had a lot of help, believe me. Um, and a shout out to Helena Bowen for helping me get that talk in shape. So, yeah. Yeah, a lot of help on that. <laughs> well, you looked, uh, it looked, you looked very confident. So that uh, was, ter- I was actually terrified. Okay. <laughs> I didn't pick that up at all. And and Chris, just quickly, <laughs> can people follow along? Do you have any um, handles, social accounts that people can sort of track the progress of Earth Archive? We we do, uh, but unfortunately, <laughs> I don't know what those are. No, <laughs> those have been set up. Not but a we worry. Haven't, we haven't actually started using them, but you can find those on the. From the uh, from the website. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll find them on the, the website and put them into our show notes as well. Chris, thank you so much for for being on our show and for filling us in on the Earth Archive. What an exciting project! We're we're super excited to follow along the story and uh, and check in with you perhaps in a year's time to see how it's going. Of course, and thank you so much for having me on. It was a pleasure, and um, I just uh, and very nice of you to do that. So thanks again. The Earth Archive is certainly an ambitious project, but one that we think has a lot of promise and potential in helping solve our climate crisis. And personally, we can't wait to see a Star Trek style hologram of our precious planet. Thank you once again for listening all and we will catch you next time.